the mic. I'm Jay Colleen. On today's episode, we welcome Ewan Porter. Ewan is an Australian professional golfer who played over 10 years on the nationwide and Australasian tours. He has won two times on those tours, the 2008 Moona Classic and the 2010 South Georgia Classic. After giving up his playing career full-time, he's now turned to broadcasting, where he broadcasts for Golf Channel and the European Tours and several others on a part-time basis. He is also the founder of Junior Six Invitational Tournament. I can't wait to talk to him about his broadcasting career, his playing career, and also his love for juniors and his development of this tournament he's got. Welcome to the podcast, Ewan. Thanks for being with me. Mate, thanks for having me on. No, I, uh, I really appreciate your time. Thanks, thanks for being with me. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your playing career and uh, what you're doing with the Junior Sixes Invitational. That's pretty cool. But I thought yep. we'd start with maybe going over um, and reflecting on the PJ that's just happened this week. I thought that was pretty cool timing. Uh, seeing as you're a broadcaster now as well, wanted to get your insights into that and, and what you're doing around that. So um, I want to start with uh, Colin's win, Marikawa. He's an uh, amazing two-shot win. And what was fascinating that I found about the, the, the tournament was uh, no one really choked this year. Uh, no one really choked in this tournament and, and he went out and sort of grabbed it with that pitch in and that amazing 16th tee shot. Yeah, the shot on 16 uh, was was obviously the one that stood out and that everyone spoke about uh, coming down the stretch, which ultimately won him the tournament, making that eagle. And it really just fit his eye beautifully, uh, that little fade in there and hitting it to six or seven feet. But you made a good point about the fact that no one choked. And it, it's something that you don't, you don't see whether you want to use that word or not. You don't really see too many people capitulate coming down the stretch in golf tournaments any, anymore. You used to see a lot more of it. And I think that's um, part and parcel of the fact that guys like Colin Morikawa, Victor Hovland, Cameron Champ, Matthew Wolf, the young guys we're seeing come on the scene. They're so ready and prepped for it um, through junior golf, amateur golf, college golf. By the time they get to the PGA tour, they've got this winning mentality. And, um, you know, we, we just we used to see players faltering coming down the stretch, especially ones who hadn't been in contention. We used to see a lot more of that. And I know, uh, for one, I, I'd much rather see someone go out there and um, take the title by the scruff of the neck rather than, you know, fall by the wayside and hand it to someone else. And I know uh, when, you, when you win a tournament too, you'd rather go and get the job done and, and win the title yourself than someone hand it to you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm with you. You don't, you don't want to see a three part or, a, or a, a silly shot from nowhere. You definitely want to see what he did, which is quite incredible. And it's a good point you make about how young they are and how good they are coming out of college and wherever these days. And he's had 27 starts, Marikau, with three wins, one major and one missed cut. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I know when I started playing golf back early 2000s, uh, at the time, it was sort of mentioned that, you know, you get to mid-30s and, you know, you, you're sort of getting your feel into golf and especially on the PGA Tour where not, no young ones were winning, really. I mean, it took 10 years to really settle in on that tour. So, yeah, something's, something's different in the water, isn't it? Maybe it's a Tiger effect, maybe something like that. Yeah, well, I mean, speaking of Tiger, the, the record that you pointed out there for Colin Morikawa, it's, uh, it, it's kind of Tiger-esque early on. I, I mean, I, I don't know what the exact correlation is, but it's certainly not too far behind where Tiger was at the age of 23 as well. And look, I mean, I mean, reaching your prime in your thirties is something that, you know, I had 
instilled into me when I was younger as well. It's, it, it's the mentality that we were all meant to, um, meant to have in that it was golf was like a, a gradual progression. And then finally you mature in your thirties. And I still think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of merit to that because, you know, taking that approach, uh, it's conducive to longevity. But I think, the, I think when that sort of um, myth, if you want to call it that, I think when that got smashed, was when Aaron Baddeley won the Australian Open in 1999. He was 18 years old, he was an amateur, and no one was supposed to do that. He took down Faldo, Monty and Norman in their prime, Jeff Ogilvy, Michael Campbell. Um, it was fascinating what he did. And I think when he did that, um, an amateur hadn't won on the Australasian Tour for 100 years. And then all of a sudden, the next week, Brett Rumford won the Players' Championship up at Royal Queensland when he beat Craig Spence in a playoff. And uh, when one person does it and others who play with that guy or are around the same ability, see him get it done, then they have the belief that they can get it done as well. And we're seeing that the last couple of years on tour. The fact that just 12 months ago, Victor Hovland, Colin Morikawa, Matthew Wolf were all playing in the NCAA College Championship. That they, they weren't even professional. And then when they did turn professional, they had to go out there and fight for a place to play. Now they're all winners on the PGA Tour. One of them a major champion and number five in the world. No doubt Hovland and Morikawa, maybe Matthew Wolf as well, are all going to be playing in the Ryder Cup next year. I mean, it's, it's quite incredible what they're doing. It is amazing. It's good to watch, definitely. I mean, we love the youngsters coming out, um, you know, and, and doing what they're doing. Like Spieth did the same thing, even Sung J Im or Im. Uh, doing the same thing as well. And um, I, I thought it was interesting. Uh, I've heard Jeff Ogilvy recently on a podcast, obviously a great bloke to listen to, fantastic mm. mind for golf. Um, he was mentioning that, yeah, a lot of players are coming out um, real early and winning because they've got that winning mindset, as you mentioned, coming through college and junior golf. Uh, but they, some of them do have a lull um, and, and you do see them a few years in, whenever it is, just to have a 12-month lull, six-month, whatever it is. Um, so that's, that's another interesting um, thing that's happening as well with these young guys that are coming out, smashing it the first couple of years, rookie of the years, and then they disappear for a little bit. So what, what do you think? Is that just a golf thing? Golf's just hard? Or it, you know, what do you reckon that is? There's definitely an element to that. But I, th I personally worry uh, for the future of a lot of these young guys coming through because the benefit, like we pointed out before, the benefit of picking in your thirties and, and then continuing to play right through to your, um, your forties and fifties is the longevity factor. The fact that you can continue playing and, and remain, um, you know, and have that sustainable lifestyle and income and job there for years to come. I think these young guys coming through now and especially Bryce and the way he's going about things, I'm not sure they'll even be playing golf in their mid to late 30s. And, okay, they might have $100 million in the bank, and that's great. You've still got to do something with your life um, after that. And when you've only known golf, it's not an easy thing to walk away from. And I think guys are putting so much effort. One of the reasons why they're winning younger is because they're so much better prepared um, physically. I mean, they're putting in so much work in the, in the gym, on the range, playing tournament after tournament that physically it wears on you after a while. You can't keep doing that. You can't keep doing that right through to your 40 or 45. You know, you've got to taper off at some point. And it's no surprise there is a bit of a lull. But I think that, yeah, like, like I said, I mean, the, the benefit of that winning mentality and being so ready to win when they're young, I think at the same token, that's going to be to their detriment down the line that um, I don't see 
too many of these guys that are going to be playing well into their 40s. I'd be absolutely shocked if a Kepcott or a DeChambeau is playing on tour in their 40s. Yeah, I think Scott Hen made a good point when I had him on the podcast. He mentioned that now that the, the prize money is that good, that they understand that it, if they have a couple of good years, that's their life set up. And, um, you know, they can just go full Paul at the start and, and really don't need a 20, 30 year career if they don't want it. So yeah, another interesting aspect to it um, with, with the money these days. So yeah, very, very interesting. I, I thought the course was set up pretty good um, for the result too. We had, I think you on Twitter mentioned 13 players within three on the back nine on Sunday, which is exactly what you want going into the last nine of the major. Um, so I think they did a great job setting the course up. Um, a lot of birdies, eagles, doubles, um, all that stuff that you want coming into the back nine of major. No question. And like you said, I, I, I tweeted that out. But there's always going to be people that are offended or are angry about something. And look, I mean, I think the thing, one of the things, I'm going to be honest, one of the things that really pisses me off about Twitter is you get a handful of guys on there who are golf architect nerds and geeks. And I look, I respect that. I, I, because I love golf architecture. I love old golf equipment. But at the same token, you can't be that person that says, well, everything was so much better in my day and completely shun what we're seeing now. Because, you know, I'm someone who watched, you know, I, I'm a golf tragic. I love what I saw in the 70s and 80s. I love the clothing, the equipment. I love everything from back then. But how can you not be entertained by what we saw on Sunday where with five holes to go, it looked like there could be a seven-way playoff, the most in history. I mean, if you're not entertained by that, like I said, you've got to have a good, hard look in the mirror because, uh, I mean, yeah. this is at the end of the day, it's the entertainment industry and we were being purely entertained by the best golfers in the world. And like you said earlier, no one choked coming down the stretch. It was absolutely fascinating right up until the final putt dropped. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with Day being an Australian, um, you know, having him up there with a chance to win again from nowhere, like he was written off. And <laughs> people are quick to write him, people off these days. And the guys come back, you know, with some uh, three or four top tens in a row and actually put a little bit of money on the guy, um, thinking that, you know, he's in good form and I nearly, it nearly paid off. But uh, Colin's destroyed me there. And even Paul Casey, like the poor guy, like, I mean, I haven't seen him play that well down the stretch of a big tournament before. He played amazingly down the stretch. He, he's one of those guys that tends to maybe make a mistake where, or miss a putt where he, he shouldn't. But he, he did everything right, and um, he came up a little short. But, you know, Collins had to make those two unbelievable shots to, to get it done, and good on him. Yeah, no question. And, uh, you know, Paul Casey had his best major finish. I think they were making the point that he's... He's played, um, he's played more major championships than anyone currently without winning. I think that was his 64th major and, and he finished third at the Open Championship 10 years ago and uh, this runner-up at Harding Park was, uh, was his best finish and uh, he did everything he needed to to win. Um, just got yeah. overtaken by a better player on Sunday. He was looking the most solid to me you know, with a few holes left. Um, I thought he was a big chance and yeah, 10 top 10s in the majors. So yeah, hopefully that's not his last chance because, um, you know, he deserves one too, I think. Um, but, you know, we, you mentioned how you couldn't be entertained. I, I think I was definitely entertained by the golf and the course set up. It, it, it allowed um, people to come back and go forward really quickly, which is what you want. But in terms of no crowd and in terms of the broadcasting, I felt a little bit underwhelmed. I thought if you added the crowd aspect to, to a PGA, you know, they're one of the loudest 
of the year. That would have been really cool to have that with, with that sort of energy around the last few holes. And with the broadcasting, I thought, uh, what do you think of the ESPN, um, is it CBS sort of combo there? How did you feel about watching, watching the broadcast? Yeah, uh, yeah. well, on, on that note with the broadcast, I mean, I saw a statistic yesterday that they showed per minute, they actually showed more golf um, than any other major championship in history. So again, from an entertainment perspective, you're seeing more shots. So you can't complain uh, at that aspect. And I think what a lot of people don't realise is that there is the commercial element to it. And I, I certainly understand people, uh, especially a lot of people in, in the US, um, I understand their frustration with all of the advertisements and shots being shown off tape. But at the same token, you know, CBS has bills to pay and those, um, you know, those ads coming in, that's what's paying those bills. So they need, mm. to, um, they need to show them. So it's kind of a catch-22. Here in Australia, when they have those advertisements in the US, um, we're lucky. We don't, we don't get too many ads. We get the world feed. So when they're showing the ads, we're seeing a lot of um, fill, if, if you'd like to call it that. And a lot of that fill comes from players who are coming 40th or 50th in, in the tournament. So you might go from seeing... Colin Morikawa one shot ahead to showing you Slouten 10 shots behind putting for a par on 17. Uh, there were a lot of gripes about that on Twitter, but there's, there's so many underlying reasons uh, that they are showing that particular shot or something similar. And um, I just think the fact that you are seeing so many different golfers playing um, live, I think it's, I think it's wonderful. And, um, you know, there's no, perfect formula but um i think here in australia to be entertained like we were coming down the stretch to be able to see a, a whole host of players um from the cameras that were available i think was pretty cool uh from a crowd perspective yeah i mean look i mean there was nothing that can be done about it unfortunately during this pandemic but i know back at um bell reeve in st louis in uh, 2018 when brooks kepka edged out tiger and adam scott I was there and there were roughly 60,000. Well, I can tell you that the first day of that tournament, there were 56,000 people there, which was a record. And they broke that record every single day after that. And to give you an idea, I know that the Open Championship typically averages about 40 or 45,000 people uh, per day on a much, much, much more expansive layout. Uh, Bell Reef much more tightly compacted and there were 56 to 60,000 people there every day. And the, mm. I mean, the noise, the decibels that were being created there was absolutely phenomenal. I mean, even in our tight little commentary box, you could hear the ruckus outside and it was, uh, it just adds so much to it. Mm. Unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, you just couldn't do anything about it this year and it's all sort of, yeah. you know, it's just hearsay or having a wild stab in the dark about what would have happened if, there had have been crowds there, but um, I think given the fact that there weren't any, we couldn't have been any more entertained. Yeah, I think going back to the broadcast, I think they've done a great job in, in uh, utilising the top tracer and I like all the, the numbers they, they generate with the ball speeds and the club head speeds, especially with Bryson being up there and doing his thing. I think that's all great and, and really added to the broadcast. Um, it's, it's interesting um, with the commentary itself, I, I, I really... I really love your commentary. I think you're very honest in your commentary. Uh, you're young, enthusiastic. I think it comes across in the way you broadcast. So I commend you on that. I really like listening to your commentary. 
Um, however, I do feel like there's, you know, with, I think there needs to be a better mix between the sort of really um, older experienced guys that have that knowledge and the younger youthful sort of, you know, sound coming out. I think the mix hasn't quite got there yet with that. And I felt like listening to the broadcast, it was a bit much of a muchness again and again. It was like repetitive. Yeah. And the tournament's different, but I felt like, you know, it's back to the same old tournament I've listened to before with, you know, I love Feldon and Finchie, but it's, you know, it's the same, same, same. You know, I'd like to hear a little bit more enthusiastic. And when, you know, Mickelson came in the booth for, for I think it was on Saturday for an hour. I mean, it just enlightened the broadcast. I'm not sure how you, if you saw that or, or listened to that, but how did you feel about that? Because I really, I thought it was a really cool uh, mix to have him in there. Yeah, I mean, whenever Phil talks regardless of what it's about, it's always with a level of enthusiasm and uh, that definitely came across in the broadcast. And I think that word in itself is something that's needed in golf broadcasting globally. I know that Sky Sports in the UK seem to have really found their niche with um, Nick Doherty, who's exactly my age, and then um, Andrew Coulter. The two of those guys have a wonderful rapport. They played on tour together over the years. And, um, you know, Andrew Coulter, He's pushing 50 now, but he, he certainly have, has a, a much, for, much more youthful exuberance about it, about his manner. And he played with a lot of these guys on tour, as too did Nick. So I think they've found a great niche with, um, with those two. Look, I know with myself, um, Ned Michaels, an American guy who I've broadcasted with over there the last few years at the US Open and uh, USGA events, he's one of my best mates. I mean, we played on the Asian tour together 16, 17 years ago. And um, one of, I'll be honest, one of very few self-depreciating Americans. And, uh, you know, he has a great sense of humour. And uh, we love we love the banter when we're in the commentary box. He's 41 or 42, which I'm 38 in, in, broad, in the broadcasting world, especially in golf. That's very, very young. And uh, I think the good thing about both of us is that we're in touch with the younger players. And we also played... Uh, and grew up idolising a lot of the older guys. So we've sort of covered both ends of the spectrum. Whereas a lot of the older guys who are in their 60s and, and 70s, they're not so familiar with um, the younger players coming through now. And I think one of, the, one of the benefits, I can guarantee you this, one of the benefits that I can assure you from a younger broadcaster's perspective is that knowing the younger guys like we do playing golf with them, hanging out with them uh, after the round or before the round is that intimate knowledge comes across so much clearer in a broadcast versus uh, reading what they've done on Google or being fed information from a statistician at the network or a producer. When you know that person, it, it just helps immensely because when you're watching a broadcast and you're watching a player, typically you've only got 10 or 15 seconds maybe to talk about him, the shot, something about uh, something that's relevant to that moment. And if you can just have that knowledge of what that player is thinking personally or something about his background to be able to throw in there in that short interim, mm. it's, it's so beneficial. And, uh, you know, I take pride in the fact that um, I've gotten to know a lot of these younger guys and certainly here in Australia over the last few few months where I really haven't had any work I've been able to play golf with a lot of the younger guys and um, like an Anthony Quayle and, you know, Jake McLeod and the Maverick Ancliffe and those guys. And, uh, you know, I, I get a huge buzz when I'm out there calling the tournament or interviewing them because we've got that rapport and it just makes it so much easier. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you've been doing it now for eight or so years, I think. Yeah, you started a few years back now. What have you learned since you've been from the start to from for your knowledge now? Or what what have you sort of changed or adapted or put into your broadcasting that you didn't do at the start? Yeah, I think one of the best pieces of, of advice that I got was uh, pretty early on. I worked alongside uh, Ian Baker Finch at the World Cup down at Royal Melbourne back in 2013. And, um, you know, he basically just said less is more. And I know it's something that uh, I remember Kerry Packer told Shane Warne early on in his broadcasting days when he retired. And uh, it really rings true because I have a tendency to waffle a little bit. I have a lot going on up here and going a million miles an hour. And um, sometimes you're better off just to let it breathe and just let a picture tell the story. Um, but to try one thing that I think I've done a much better job of over the last few years is, is being a little more succinct with everything and trying to get it all out within 10 or 15 seconds. Because, you know, if you've got 10 or 15 seconds to call a shot and you've got information that goes for 30 seconds, and all of a sudden you're talking about um, X player when they're showing someone else on another hole, all of a sudden it's not relevant. So mm. yeah, you've really got to keep things pretty tight. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the, 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 um, I'm thinking back, back to Tiger in 2019 when he won the Masters on 16. Um, who's, I've just lost the name of the guy who broadcasts on 16. He's been doing it for years. Vern Lanquist. That's it, Vern, yeah. So Vern did that amazing call of the 16th chip in back in 05. And yep. I just thought, you know, when that ball was rolling down again, that in 2019, I thought it was a great opportunity to say, oh my goodness, again. Like, yeah. I, I, I don't know, he let it go. He, he definitely let the picture speak for it that time. But I just, I wanted him to say it again. I don't know why. It was just like, oh my goodness. Like, imagine <laughs> having this happen again. Like, I don't know. It was, um, yeah, he's done some amazing calls. I, I love listening to him. One, one of his best ones people forget about was calling Happy Gilmore's win over Shooter McGavin. Yeah. <laughs> people, don't, people don't remember that. That was a pretty big win. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think, what do you enjoy most about the broadcasting? Do you like doing the on-course commentary or do you like analysis? What, what do you like specifically for yourself? Yeah, I mean, if, you, if you, uh, you know, you've got on-course analysts and hosts. I mean, if I had to pick one of them and said you could only do that job, I'd take analyst. Um, yeah. I really enjoy all three, so I'm, I'm nitpicking at yeah. saying that one. But I feel like the differences are... When you're a host, you're basically you're setting up the image for the analyst. So um, in my position, I've hosted a couple of times and uh, it's hard for me because I know, you know, I've got the knowledge of the player and whoever, but I have to keep that under wraps and allow the analyst to, you know, express all of those thoughts and opinions. Um, when you're analyst, you've got a lot more time to elaborate on your knowledge of a player or a situation. When you're an on-course commentator, you've only got a very, very short window of time to talk about the shot at hand. So you can't, the, all the information I might have on a player at hand, whether it's whoever it is that I'm following, I don't have time to talk about that. All I've got is, um, you know, it's a seven iron, it's a tight lie, he's got to cut it into the pin. It looks good, it's left of the flag. You know, you, you've only got a very short window to talk about that. But at the same token... You're out there, I get to do the on-course interviews, the post-round interviews, and um, you, you just, you're out there amongst the action and there's a real buzz to that too. So I love all three, but if I had to pick one, I'd definitely just take analyst. Yeah, when you're on course, and uh, so you obviously talk to the caddies, do you, and figure out what, do they give you a little, um, 
uh, number or sign about what club they got, or is that is that how you get that information? They do, yeah. So um, you know, you, you generally speak to them before the round, and they know you're going to be out there, and you don't want to be too intrusive. So once the caddy and the player have discussed the shot, and the player pulls the club and is getting ready, the caddy will generally look over and give you the two fingers mm-hmm. or four fingers, which means seven iron, oh, yeah. nine iron, you know. So um, four irons, four down. So look, they're just little signals that you understand when you're um, when you're out there doing it. And uh, you know, I try and keep my distance, but I know a lot of. I know when I was playing, I really enjoyed a chat, and quite often I chat with the on-course commentator when I'm out there. And some of the players um, with the shoe on the other foot are, are no different. And um, I really enjoy it too because when they talk to me, I'm getting a little bit more insight into their mentality that I can add to the broadcast too. Yeah, it can't be easy. I, I know for me, there's there's two things that give me the the, the gripes. Right, there's two things I'd say. One is when they misread a putt. So the commentary says, "Oh, this is left edge," or it'll go a little bit to the right, and it does the opposite. Like to me, they're guessed. I don't know what's happened. Some they've either guessed or because they didn't quite know they want to say something, and they've just said it and hopefully mm-hmm. hope for the best. So I'm not sure what goes in there, but they get it wrong a lot of the time. Yeah, and they the, do. Yeah. And, and yeah, no, I was just, just going to, sorry, I was just going to say on that note that, um, again, it brings me back to the World Cup in, uh, in 2013 with Finchie. And I know prior to each round, uh, we didn't go on air until 12 o'clock. We were on the golf course at, um, at 7.30, 8 o'clock. And this was all purely because of Finchie's, um, you know, professionalism and dedication. We'd go around in a golf cart and he treated each day like a practice round as if he was a player. So he'd check out where the pins were, where the tees were, where the ideal landing spot was and where the ideal angle was. And then when we get on the green, he'd take a putter out, he'd take a couple of balls and he'd hit different putts. So he knew exactly what way putts were going to break so that he would not make that error on the broadcast. I thought that was pretty eye-opening. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think yeah, I think it's great to 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 prelude the shot. It's fantastic. People want to hear that. But yeah, when uh, when they get it wrong, most often it's like, well, are you just guessing? Like it's just I don't know. For some reason, really annoys me because I'm looking left edge and it doesn't. Anyway, and the other thing, the other one that really gets me is when they call a shot fat when they they've come up short. Like like the, it, there's no option for a miss club, or maybe they've got it high on the face. It's always fat if it's short, and that. That really annoys me as well. <laughs> For some reason. Yeah, I know. I understand. <laughs> but um, anyway, I think most of the time they do a good job. But um, anyway, what what got you what got you into broadcast? Did you always have a love for it? And you said you like to talk. Did you always think that could be something for you to do after you're playing, or did it something you just fell into? Yeah, well, look, I mean, it really stems back to when I was about six or seven years old, and I, and I was a rugby league tragic, which I still love the sport, but I'd sit on the couch and. My goal was to be Rex Mossop or Ray Warren, and I, I wanted to call rugby league, and I'd still do it given the opportunity. Mm. Um, but you know, that's thirty years ago, and uh, it's it's something that I'm I'm living not during the pandemic, but it's something that I have been living mm. whilst I was still playing on tour. Um, fairly early on, when I was about twenty five, I had the opportunity to do some. Um, in front of the camera stuff and a little bit of on-course work over in the US on the, uh, on the well, it was the nationwide tour then, Corn Ferry Tour now. And I had some positive feedback, realised that I enjoyed it, did a couple more times whilst I was still playing. And then, uh, yeah, certainly towards the end uh, of my playing days, even though I was only 29 or 30 when I walked away from it, 
I realized that it was something that I really wanted to pursue. And in the back of my mind, I didn't want to be 35 or 40 years old and still playing and wondering what I was going to do with the rest of my life. So it was very, very difficult to walk away from uh, playing when I still had status and eligibility to play out there. I wasn't playing well and I wasn't enjoying it, but I had an idea of what I was going to enjoy, which was the television and broadcast side of it. And it, it hasn't been easy. It's been a long, hard slog to really try and get the foot in the door and a lot of emails, a lot of phone calls and a lot of just, um, you know, meetings and fly, literally flying all over the world to meet with the right people. But, um, you know, I always deep down believe that I, I could do a good job and uh, there's always a little part of me that's concerned that I don't have a PGA Tour win or a major win under my belt, which in the US seems to count for everything. Um, but in other parts of the world, especially in Europe, it's, um, I feel like it's just, I, I'd like to think that it's my uh, enthusiasm and my youthful exuberance, really, uh, when it comes to television that's going to uh, carry the weight. Absolutely. And uh, look, you're a winner on tour, mate. So, um, you know, that's nothing to be shunned about. So, um, yeah, keep up the good work. I think you're, you're a great commentator. So uh, keep, keep up the, hopefully you get back out there um, after this uh, shutdown, hey? So, oh, I hey, hope so. Any end in sight for you? Any, when's your next one? Or do you even know? No, I mean, I signed a contract to work in Europe this year and uh, I had 10 events that I was going to work and I did Dubai and Saudi Arabia plus the Vic Open earlier this year. And mm. yeah, I mean, that tour itself is struggling now. I mean, I had mm. half a dozen events with PGA Tour Live in the US. Um, I had mm. to give up the US PGA and the US Open. And I mean, I, I still I received a travel exemption from our government. I could have gone over there, but I didn't see the point in going over there to do two or three events and then come back and have to pay three grand in quarantine. I mean, I... I could go and make $100,000 if, if I did go and make $100,000. Still, the last thing I would want to do is come back and spend 14 days in a hotel room. I just, I couldn't yeah. think of anything worse. Absolutely, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, hopefully, um, hopefully this, uh, yeah, I won't go too deep into it. Hopefully we get back <laughs> back on the street soon, hey? It's, um, yeah, it's a bit silly at the moment, I think. But, um, and I'm, and you guys are okay. You can guys get outside without putting a mask on. We're, uh, we're locked away and uh, hour a day outside and curfew. So, um, yeah, I feel like, uh, um, yeah, I feel like we're not in Australia anymore at the moment. So let's, let's hope for the best. It should start a coronavirus podcast. We could make it pretty controversial, I think. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, moving on, moving on. Um, yeah, I, I want to talk a little bit about, because um, you, you, you alluded to the fact you've been able to play a little bit now that you're back and, um in the shutdowns and you play with Quayley. I know Anthony, he's uh, I've played with him a couple of times. Amazing talent. Watch out for him, I think. And um, you're able to play with Adam Scott too. So that was, that was pretty cool. What I want to know, he didn't have any lead up really tournament wise. And he'd come out and top, top 22, four under at, at that, at that track. And I thought that was a great effort. He's a top 10 player. What, what do you see the difference? What's the difference between a top 10 player in your eyes and, and just your, your tour player that wins a couple of times. What, what's the difference? Yeah, it's a very, very, very fine line. Um, I think someone like Adam Scott, uh, let's go back to what you uh, said at the start, that he finished tied for 22nd and hadn't played a tournament since March. You know, he told me that um, one thing that he's figured out over the years is that he loves to starve himself of competition. And, you know, he won at Riviera 
in February this year and it was his first tournament in eight or nine weeks. Now, most players would have, they would consider themselves having absolutely no chance of winning after a two, two and a half month break. They feel, they would feel like they need at least a couple of tournaments under their belt to get the reps in so that they felt comfortable. I can really only think of Tiger as, an, as the other person that could come off for an extended break and go and win. But, you know, Adam realised that uh, he, he does enjoy starving himself of the competition and he, he really feels like that he's hungry and ready to go. Proved that when he won at Riviera. Uh, this was the longest break he's ever had in his career. I think to go and play um, four rounds in a major championship and not one of those rounds be under par. He did admit that his iron play was uh, a little bit rusty. And... I just think it's incredible what he did because that was not an easy golf course and I'm sure that he would have liked to have finished a little higher up on the leaderboard but still it was a commendable effort given the uncertainty of the last few months and I know when he was out here in Australia he told me um, when we played a couple of times that he just wanted to play yeah you know there was the there was the opportunity here to do something that will do quite a few things that he hadn't done his entire career which was to spend a few months in Australia spend a lot of time with his mates uh, play local public golf courses and mm. help his friends out washing golf carts and playing with their sons and doing junior clinics and he was just the greatest role model and ambassador for Australian golf that you could imagine while he was here on the Sunshine Coast and um, yeah, he just what a wanted legend. to play what a legend. Oh, champion and you know he, he just wanted to play he said I don't like practicing and grinding if I haven't had my coach's eyes on my swing and working on something specific and he said that would that would have happened uh, if he was here because his coach his brother-in-law actually lives in london and whilst there's what we're doing now there's zoom and there's facetime there's nothing like that uh face-to-face -face contact mm. and hence they went into a uh, a two-week uh what do you want to go two week like boot camp training camp in south carolina before he went to the the pga championship where they were able to do that so look i i, I said to him i said you know, mate, for winning 30-something tournaments and a major championship and being world number one. I said, whilst that's absolutely incredible and everyone would give their left arm to be able to do that, I said, what, what he did here in Queensland while he was home, to me, is far and away better than any on-course achievement mm -hmm. because, you know, he's, he's basically leaving a legacy uh, for, for generations to come by doing what he did. Yeah, absolutely. And the, yeah, he, he's clearly his ego. Um, he, that ego isn't shown like he, I mean, it'd be so easy for him to say, oh, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not informed. I don't want to put this out there or what have you, but clearly he's just, he's got, he's got a heart of a champion, a heart of gold. And, and it was so good to see that. And, and the guys that uh, he played with and in the courses that benefit from it must be loving it. So um, yeah, good on him. But um, in terms of what you saw in him, um, do you think it's uh, more of a mental belief or self-belief? You know, these guys, you know, in the top 20, top 10s, is it, is it the difference of self-belief? Yeah, I probably should have answered that question, shouldn't I? Instead of going <laughs> off tangent. That's okay. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I guess I was trying to relate it to Scotty, who, who is a, mm. a top 10 player, as we know, and uh, just, just so solid all round. I mean, I, I know that he gets a hard time for his putting but statistically he's actually in the top third of putters on the on the pga tour he's one of the greatest lag putters going around mm. um so statistically he actually doesn't have that many three putts mm. uh yeah look 
Lucas Herbert. I've played a couple of games with Lucas while he was here. And Anthony Quayle, who was top 30 on the Japanese tour last year and won the Queensland Open. He's a top 200 player in the world. Um, yeah, I would say uh, ball flight is probably a big thing. I noticed that uh, Adam doesn't hit... Uh, I mean, although he can vary his trajectory, he doesn't have many mishits at all. I mean, everything is flushed. Uh, there's nothing that's really spinny or a snap hook or anything like that. Whereas, you know, like a, a Lucas or an Anthony Quayle, 99% of it is uh, incredible. There's that 1%, there's one or two shots maybe per round that are... Uh, I mean, I, I'm clutching at straws here. They're a little bit loose. Uh, and, and I don't mean to be harsh. It's, it's just something that... It's, it's my role as an analyst, I guess, to, to, um, to highlight this. And just one mm. or two shots around that I thought to myself, yeah, look, I wouldn't see Adam hit that shot. Uh, and it's, again, it's, it's something so minor because they are, uh, they are so impressive. But it, it, it is that one or two shots per day, which adds up to half a dozen shots maybe at the end of the tournament, which adds up to half a million dollars. So it's... Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it is that fine line. It's only one or two shots per round, and that's what these guys are. Uh, that's what these guys are seeking who aren't in the top ten or top twenty in the world. They're looking at ways to, um, you know, to eliminate that that one or one bad shot per round. Yeah, it, it, as you said, at the top level, there's not much to it. There's not much in it. But yeah, as you said, one or one or two loose shots, you might get away with it on some occasions. But if you over a course of seventy two holes. That's enough, isn't it? And, and not many players win by more than, you know, one or two shots in a tournament, do they? It's mm. like a playoff one or two shot win. So there's a fine line between first, second, third. So, um, yeah, it's more robotic, isn't it? It's, it's, you know, same, same, same. Put yourself in the position time and time again. And that's what that's the good players seem to do. The top 10 players are just there all the time, yep. all the time. And they break through. Um, with, a, with a tournament where they, you know, last nine holes, something like what Colin did, happens but they're there yeah, look, most of the time. It, it, you're right it's incredible but i mean it's it's just it's something that if you're not really comfortable over a shot it will whether it's a driver or a putt or a chip it will get exaggerated under pressure yeah absolutely so i'm going to talk about you now uh in your playing career if that's cool um two-time winner so um you've won the moona classic that was back in 2008 and then won again at the source South Georgia Classic, which was the Corn Ferry Tour equivalent nationwide. I think yeah. the Moona Classic was also a co-sanctioned event, wasn't it? So Correct, um, yeah. basically a two-time winner on that tour. Um, and you won by seven shots in, at the Moona Classic. Um, talk us a little bit about that week because um, you absolutely crushed the field. I did, yeah. And I didn't have, uh, I didn't have too much previous experience at Moona. I played the Aussie Open there in 2003 and had missed the cup. But I'd had a good stretch uh, the end of 2007, early 2008. I'd been in contention in a few tournaments, went close to winning the LCA Open at the Aussie in 07 and had just qualified for the Open Championship prior to winning Munara. Definitely went in there full of confidence and uh, definitely felt like it was a, a golf course that, uh, that suited my game. And, and when I say, when I referenced that, it was more, I think, from a visual perspective, I'll be honest, I've never been the most accurate driver going around. And uh, at, at Moonar, I, I was flushing it that week and I was hitting it, distance-wise, I was hitting it pretty long. So I, I felt like there were a lot of fairway bunkers there that really weren't in play. I was just carrying them. 
whilst other players were having to lay up short of them. So I was able to take full advantage of, of that aspect of my game. But at the same token, everything seemed to fall into place that week. And I was leading after a couple of rounds by a shot. And then I hurt my neck in the gym on Saturday morning. And I actually thought that I was going to have to pull out. And in hindsight, it was a blessing in disguise because I had so much to think about and there was so much at stake and I didn't have any status on any tour outside of Australia at that point that uh, I think it took my mind off the potential outcome and really it was just a shot by shot process of trying to get through each one without hurting my neck too much and uh, even though I still only held a one-shot lead after 54 holes the same thoughts and process uh, applied for Sunday where I was in a world of pain literally and I was just trying to get through each shot but it actually benefited me in the long run right so just minimize the focus for you and um, yeah yeah that, that's awesome so yeah because you turned pro I think 2002 so it took you six years to get to that point so you said you you sort of led up to that and you had some confidence was there anything that you developed in your game or to improve yourself to, to ready for that win as well or sort of lead, lead up to that tournament, what, what was it that, that that week it sort of clicked? Yeah, I think in 2007, I, I did play my first Open Championship at Carnoustie. Played terribly, but um, great experience. I'd actually, I'd had a rough year in 07. It was um, a combination of really didn't have anywhere to play worldwide. Hadn't played that much, played terribly when I did. Had a breakup with a girlfriend uh, in the US and came back to Australia in October and just wasn't swinging it well, wasn't playing well. And I still remember a moment when I, I went up to the New South Wales Open at uh, the Vintage in the Hunter Valley and on the range Wednesday and it just, I, I hit a couple of shanks. I had no idea where it was going and uh, I was almost in, on the verge of tears. I mean, I just, I was ready to give it away. I'd been at it for a little over five years and obviously financially wasn't doing too well because of all of that. And um, Christian Small, who I've known since I was a junior, he was working up there for a golf equipment company called Nikent, who I ended up using their equipment when I won at Moona in 2008. I asked him just to have a look at my swing on the Wednesday and he he noticed that I was was really restricting my hip turn on the way back and spinning out of it and getting stuck on the way down. So really the only thought that I had for the rest of that week was to try and get a deeper hip turn going back and feel like my arms were out racing my hips coming down, which is almost the opposite to what we're hearing now with the young guys just rotate so quickly. Mm. But for me, I, I still, I still to the day feel like there's a lot of merit in just syncing everything up coming down. And my, my swing thought was to feel like the position I was in at address was where I wanted to be at impact. That was my, that was my mm. thought anyway. And, I ran with that thought for a few months and uh, it was terrific because I just knew that any shot that went right, I knew that it was because I'd spun out of it and the club was behind me. So um, mm. to, to know that, to have that knowledge of a shot and why it occurred was, um, was liberating. Unfortunately, it didn't, uh, it didn't stick with me for an extended period of time, but that you know, period from the New South Wales Open in October 07 through till March 2008, a six-month stretch there where I think I... I didn't miss a card. I won a tournament, almost won an Aussie Open and qualified for the Open. It was, it was a great stretch of golf for me. And it was really all thanks to uh, Christian giving me that tip on the range at uh, the Vintage. 
Yeah, Christian, I follow him a little bit on uh, Instagram and Facebook. He's he's a good fella too. So um, yeah, shout out to him. Um, it's interesting you said that because I, I think you're right. I think um, the two things, having a feel that you can trust, definitely like the, the hip back and sinking up your, your hands and arms and knowing knowing that if you have, have a bad, bad shot, there is somewhere where you can go and you're not worried about it. Those two things are crucial, aren't they, for, for your success um, over a 72-hole tournament? Um, because if you're not sure where that bad shot's coming and when it's coming and how it's coming, um, your confidence can get really dried up, can't it? Yeah, and I think that almost really comes back to what we were just talking about with the elite players. It's definitely also one of the reasons that I think the, the top, top, players uh, in the world rankings are able to play well on a consistent basis is that there is no real panic mode there uh, after a, a bad shot. There's no searching when they're out on the golf course. And I know that even a lot of the, you know, a lot of the top professionals on the PGA tour and the European tour that they're guilty of it. They're guilty of searching when they're out there. And it's something that's not, it's a bandaid fix. It's not something that's conducive to being consistent and playing well uh, long-term. I think that if you can have, if you can have that knowledge uh, of a particular shot on a golf course and why that occurs, and then be able to um, to be able to put some, you know, put a fix on it while you're out there, that's that's huge. Not many people have the ability to be able to do that, and I know I I did only for a short period, and gee, it was a wonderful feeling. Yeah, you would have been walking very tall, I'd imagine. Um, it's a great feeling, is it, when you the game can feel so easy and so hard, and it. It, you know, one minute you feel like you can't not win a tournament, and the next minute you feel like you can't, you know, bust an egg, as we would say, right? So the it's difference is amazing. I, it's, it's funny after I won Munar and I won by seven. I, I remember I did an interview with with someone and I said, "Well, geez, I didn't even have a tour to play a couple of weeks ago or a week ago, but now I I think the realistic goal is to to get three wins under my belt as soon as I can and get the battlefield promotion to the PGA Tour." <laughs> <laughs> all of a sudden I'm, then, then I start missing cuts again and I'm like what's wrong there was this complete mm. false sense of security that I'd won a tournament just thinking oh well I should be able to do that all the time just ridiculous game so yeah ridiculous so can you pinpoint where it sort of fell apart I mean is it back to your technical part again do you just feel like you just lost a bit of confidence in the technical side again I did yeah I wish I knew why that thought that I had I wish I knew why it stopped working it did uh and then I just I did go searching again um mm. I think yeah I, I just I wish that I could go back to what I did as a kid um even now I sort of as much as I love what I'm doing there's a, there's definitely a part of me that uh, when I was a kid I never had a coach never had lessons I didn't look at my golf swing I didn't care I mean I I think I was almost old school in that my theory was the ball flight doesn't lie. If I was slicing it or hooking it, it was because of X. So I just fix it up. If I was hooking it, I just start hitting a few cuts and that seemed to figure it all out. And um, there's a part of me that sort of wishes I had it stuck to that because I think the overanalyzing really did me in, really sort of um, mm. wore me out, uh, ground me to a halt earlier than what I anticipated and uh, everything happens for a reason. I'm not complaining. I'm very happy. I've had some wonderful experiences and I did get to win, but there's definitely, I think there'll always be a, a part of me that wonders, well, if I hadn't have sort of overthought things and seen different coaches and gotten their opinions and listened to people and practice more than what I should have, uh, 
I think that, um, yeah, I may have played for a little bit longer, perhaps had a little more success, but um, yeah, mm. who knows? It's all, it's all hindsight and it's 2020. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, the patterns, the patterns you have as a kid really stay with you. And, and if you're going to try and change a pattern, you've got to work hard and hit a lot of balls and do a lot of work to change that. So when you saw coaches, did you feel like it should have been a quicker fix or quicker um, turnaround to changing a technique? Did you feel like maybe looking back now, you're like, well, if I'm going to try and do that, it should have been a lot more hard work going into that? Yeah, look, I... I did see a lot of coaches between, I'd say, 2008, 2011, 2012. Gosh, I sought the opinion of so many people when I hadn't sought the opinion of anyone until about the age of 21. Uh, it was like a complete contradiction to what I did when I was a kid. And uh, it, it's, it's all, my results were all my fault. It was no one's, no one else's fault. I think now that I look back, I mean, I was seeing these coaches in the middle of a season and on tour after missing a few cuts and thinking something to change and expecting something to change immediately when that was realistically never going to happen. I mean, yeah, I, I, I just, it's something that I think that anytime I saw a coach, I probably would have been better off sticking with the one coach and accepting that for a period of time, there was going to be a struggle before I really started seeing results, but I was always trying to better my position on the money list or, yeah. you know, make a cut in, in the open championship or something, something along those lines. There was always a result coming up that I, I needed to play well. And um, I was never really in anything for the long term. I was always looking for the quick fix. And unfortunately that never occurred and it's not a good way of um, going about things. And it's actually something that I try and tell young golfers coming through the ranks now that uh, whatever you did, as a kid, whatever made you good, don't ever stray too far from that. If you're someone who had lessons from the age of 10, if you're someone who never practices and just plays holes, go and just continue doing that because once you start getting away from the habits that made you good, I think it can only lead to um, second guessing down the track. Yeah, absolutely. You're spot on because I think I've spoken to a lot of guys on the podcast now that have been tour players for 10, 20, 30 years and that's what they all come back to is like, you got to find what works for you and mm -hmm. stick to it. And, and the people, the people that stick to it have long careers. The ones that keep finding and searching is, is, is like you mentioned, the confidence just gets to the point where you just can't do it anymore. And you, and you lose the art of playing golf and it's all about positions and technique and swinging. And it's not about the art of actually playing. So all the fun also goes out that we know, doesn't it? When you're trying to play a tournament, it's just not fun anymore, is it? Well, it's not fun. And, uh, you know, one of the great aspects too of, of traveling around on tour is exactly that. Maybe not during a pandemic, but uh, traveling, going and seeing all these different places around the world. And uh, I'd say in my last six to 12 months of playing, I, I pretty much became a tourist everywhere I went. I hated playing practice rounds. I, I was just over the whole thing. And anytime I went to the tournament on the Monday, I basically spent Monday through Wednesday exploring Colombia or Chile or New York or wherever we went and then I'd rock up Thursday and play and um, by that point I was I was ready to give the game away so I was in a, a golf headspace that wasn't great but I think if I had have taken that approach of exploring a little bit more when I was there earlier on a few years earlier I think it might have been conducive to a bit more longevity rather than grinding it out and being at the golf course all day long because it did definitely take the fun out of it. Yeah, for sure. And 
it's interesting. You, you mentioned 2008, you feel confident, and then you lost the confidence 09. And then 2010 rocks along. <laughs> and I had a look at your 2010 season. And yeah, a lot of, lot of withdrawals, a lot of MCs. Um, and then in amongst, in amongst this, one, you know, and, and you've, you've been able to uh, win a tournament on the, on the, on the, you know, I would say is one of the harder tour, uh, tours in the world because, you know, you, you think about the European tour as the second biggest, but the talent on that second tour in the U S is incredible. So to, well, that, to get in- yeah, that year I won in 2010, there were six guys on the nationwide tour that won in 2011 on the PGA tour. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When I won that week, Keegan Bradley, um, Brendan Steele, Brendan Todd, Chris Kirk. I mean, uh, Kyle Stanley. They're just some of the names I remember who who played. And mm-hmm. Johnny Vegas, I played the last 36 holes with and beat him by one in the end. And uh, you know, they're all those guys I mentioned. I think they're they're multiple winners on tour. So uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I I don't know I don't know how I won that week. It, it it completely came out of the blue. I mean, I qualified for the Open at the start of the year at um. I played the qualifying at Kingston Heath and then the Open Championship was played at St. Andrews that year. So I played that. I think I had a top 10 at the New Zealand PGA straight after it at Clearwater, but then I missed like six cuts in a row. It was woeful. And the week before I won in Georgia, I actually played the Volvo China Open uh, just outside of Shanghai and I roomed with Jason Norris that week. And uh, my now ex-girlfriend, Annabelle, we were... Uh, we were renting in um, in Palm Beach in Florida at the time and I didn't want to leave her there alone. So she flew to London uh, while I was in China and all of a sudden, uh, I don't know if you remember, a volcano erupted in Iceland and it disrupted all air traffic in Europe. There were no flights out. I do remember that, so, yeah. So that happened while I was in China. I bogeyed the last four holes round two in China to miss the cut by one, my sixth in a row. Couldn't get a flight out uh, until Monday. So I flew from China back to New York, then back down to Palm Beach, got in at midnight Monday night, um, just severely jet lagged, called Annabelle not long after I uh, got back. She's still stuck in London, really not knowing what was going to happen with the flight situation in Europe. And we sort of, we decided that, the week after the Valdosta tournament, that that was it. We were going, we were moving back to Australia. Um, she had a job opportunity lined up at Fox Sports. I was going to go and play the One Asia Tour, uh, which was around back then, and I had status on. And we decided to clean up the, well, I had to clean up the apartment all Tuesday and Wednesday morning in Palm Beach in Florida there. And then I did the eight-hour drive up to Valdosta, Georgia. Got in late Wednesday night. Had to tee it up Thursday morning without a uh, without a practice round, and I shot five under. And meanwhile, Annabelle had been able to get out of London. She got the first flight out to New York on Wednesday night. Flew down to Florida to Jacksonville on um, Thursday. On Thursday, got in Thursday afternoon. So I finished my round in Georgia. Drove two and a half, three hours to Jacksonville to pick her up. Drove back to Georgia. Got in late Thursday night after I'd already played. My body clock, I barely slept for a few days. I had jet lag. I just, I don't know how I won the tournament. It was just, I, I don't know. Maybe all expectations went out the window because I'd made the decision that I was going back to Australia. It didn't matter. Um, yeah, and 
what a feeling. I mean, to, to win the tournament, to win on US soil, obviously I had to change my plans again after, uh, after winning, but it, it was just such a thrill to, as I said, to win a tournament of that stature on that tour, playing with David Hearn and, um, and Johnny Vegas the last 36 holes and uh, something I'm very proud of. So leading up to the tournament, you talk about expectations. Did you find something again on the range for feel or something that gave you confidence to swing it to? Or you just... Well, did... no, because I actually hadn't practiced. from In China, I, I played pretty well. I actually played very nicely for 32 holes. And then I bogeyed the last four holes to miss the cut by one. And then I didn't touch a club again until I teed it up on Thursday in the, in the tournament. So, no, I did... I, I don't know. I think I, I do remember before round one um, finding something on the putting green. Like I did hit a few putts and roll them in from everywhere and thought, oh, that felt pretty good. And I think I had a chip in from memory in the first three or four holes that got me to under par. And it was a tough golf course. And it was actually, I think, still to the day, statistically the longest golf course on any tour around the world, just under 7,800 yards. So it was a bit of a beast. And I've always... Uh, typically played well on tough golf courses uh, where the cut's one or two over or something. And I think just getting off to that good start gave me a bit of momentum, but there was really nothing that I could pinpoint where I look back and say that made the difference. So when you're coming off no preparation like that at all and you got in the first tee, right? What, tell me what go, what, what's the routine like mentally there? I mean, what are you, are you just, picking a shot and really visualising it and then just attacking it? Is that, is that the mentality in, in what you're doing? Yeah, look, I think any other tournament, I, I think I probably would have been a little bit more, with a preparation like that, I think I would have been a little bit more nervous and anxious. But like I said, given the fact that I had made up my mind that was my last tournament uh, and also the, the opening tee shot there was pretty wide open uh, and I... I was able to freewheel it a little bit more than if there was OB left or water right or something. So I do remember hitting a really good opening tee shot. Uh, and an another thing that would be remiss of me not to mention was the fact that I had sort of, I don't know how I did, but I developed this sort of 15, 20 person strong cheer squad that week. I was getting billeted out on the golf course. I'd never met them before Wednesday night. And they had this huge mansion that they lived in and they brought in friends from Alabama and, all around Georgia to watch the tournament and they just all decided, I don't know why, to become my, my cheer squad for the week. And I think yeah. that just, that, that added to the fun element of the week. And I was almost, I was treating the week like a swan song. And um, it all just, yeah, everything just fell into place. And thankfully too, it was on Golf Channel. So I've got the DVDs at home. I can always relive the memories. And I hit some absolutely horrendous shots that week that I like poking fun at myself on uh, on twitter from some of those clips but uh, all in all it was uh, incredible memories oh is that the wedge shot you talk i think i've seen that is that <laughs> you got those beautiful check pants haven't you uh yeah beautiful might be a bit of a stretch but yeah, I remember <laughs> having um i had 100 yards to the flag on saturday on the 15th hole middle of the fairway perfect lie and i had 70 yards for my next so it was the divot went further than the ball it was just disgusting and then i almost hold the next shot so, see, this is what fascinates me about you, man. I just, I don't understand how, um, how you could have no preparation and then hope to God on the first tee. And, and do you just, when that first tee shot comes off, is it just some sort of rhythm that you've just got internally and you just go with the rhythm? You're not sure? Yeah. 
I, I don't know, Jake. I, I wish I, I wish I did. I, I, yeah, I was very, very inconsistent. And I had so many people say to me that they wish they had my, my type of, um, my style of play where when I did make a cut, I typically contended. Uh, but I, 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 and I, I get where they're coming from because yeah, I did, when I was in contention, I did strangely feel comfortable, which is bizarre because it didn't happen really all that often. It only happened a handful of times on the big stage. So, um, look, I, I know from a player's perspective, I would have much preferred to have been that consistent guy that makes a lot of cuts because I know that when I make a cut, I feel like I've got a really, really good chance and a bit of pressure goes out the wind out the window. But yeah. Um, yeah, look, I, I got, the like, job done I got the job done twice and uh, I'm thankful for that. It sounds like you're really um, uh, a confidence player. It sounds like you were, you know, if, if the confidence was high, you were like top of the world, you're going to win. You know what I mean? And, and you yeah. did that. And then uh, for some, for whatever reason, what, what do you think? Because, you know, um, it's okay not to win all the time, right? It's, it's really hard to win. Yeah. But why do you think you, did you miss cuts just by one or two or were they by a lot? No, I did. Well, I think I worked out, I had a stretch in 2010, 2011, where I missed 12 cuts or 13 by one shot. Right. Um, yeah. And I know in 2010, that year alone, there were five tournaments where the cut was six under par and not, not one of the golf courses was under 7,000 yards. So 10 years ago, uh, technology's come a long way in 10 years. So, you know, a 7,100 yard course then is the equivalent to probably 74 now. Um, not, not easy by any stretch. And I was playing okay. I, uh, you know, the tournaments that I was missing cuts, I was still under par for 36 holes. But the problem is that okay doesn't get it done on those mm -hmm. tours. You know, you, you get two rounds out of it. You've got to play really well now just to be there for the weekend and exceptional to, to be contending. So it does chip away at your confidence when you're rocking up to the golf course on Saturday to practice and the other guys are going out there to contend in the tournament. It's, um, mm. it's not easy to do. So uh, I think for me, I, I let the fact that I was emceeing get to me a little bit as opposed to looking at my results and saying, well, okay, it's not, it's not that bad. It may be just two or three shots around. Where can I improve those two or three shots? I, I didn't look at it objectively like that i just pretty much went into panic mode so where where do you think looking back those one or two shots would have come from where, where was you sort of feel like your weakness was where you could have picked that up uh for, for me it was definitely it was tee shots it was uh it was the lack of trust in myself or my swing or whatever you want to call it it was always it's always been the case it's one or two shots around that i'll drive it into the water or out of bounds make a double or a triple and that really just crucifies me. Uh, mm. The amount of times I did that, I, uh, you know, I'd, I'd probably be a millionaire now if I hadn't have made those doubles or triples. And I know I look at someone like um, uh, Cameron Davis, who's playing on tour now, and he is sort of the same in that he just seems to throw in a double every single round. I mean, makes a ton of birdies, has so much talent and a great guy. But um, just that one hole every round, I think right now is the difference between him being 100th on FedEx and probably top 20 or 30. So it's, mm, mm. I, I don't know what Cameron's, uh, I don't know what his problem is with the, if you want to call it that, with the double or triple. For me, it was just standing on a tee shot and just not trusting it. And more, and more often than not, it was trouble on the left. Yeah, okay. <laughs> 
The um, you must have been quite secure emotionally, and how did how did you deal with it emotionally when you kept missing those cuts? Did it really get to you, or did you just really have a fight in you? Uh, yeah, no, it did, did get to me. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I know there was at least one occasion where I was on the phone to my mother. And I think I, I was in Boise in Idaho and I was just, uh, just in tears, just bawling my eyes out. And the amount of times I just felt like the world was against me and just completely lonely. Um, mm-hmm. Just a feeling that I had. Nothing, the only reason I felt like that is because of how I was performing. And um, yeah, I've always felt secure in myself as a person but probably insecure in the fact that i was missing cuts a bit insecure as a golfer i I don't know i was secure in myself it sounds like a contradiction because when i was tension i was very secure out there Mm. but on a week-to-week basis that emotional roller coaster fluctuated a lot and i felt insecure out there sort of when i was missing a lot of cuts every now and again i'd feel like i was a bit of a laughing stock if i withdrew or I did. I'm not going to lie. I'm not. I'm not proud of it. I walked off a golf course a couple of times in um, in tournaments. I know I'm not the first person to have done that, but it's something that I wouldn't do again if if given the chance. But um, it, for me, I, I rode an emotional roller coaster out there, and again, I keep coming back to it. If you're going to have a, a long career, you, you can't afford to be doing that because there's going to be so many more lows than highs. You've got to be able to try and keep it. Mm. at a plateau as much as possible and I know last year when I was broadcasting at the US Senior Open um, a guy that I knew pretty well was caddying for Retief Goosen and he caddied for a ton of players on tour and uh, he said he never met anyone that um, had kept it so level emotionally which is no surprise watching Retief Goosen play and I think hence why not only has he had a successful career but He's 50-something now and will probably continue to play well and into, mm. into for another 10, 15 years. And it's um, yeah, mm. just something you've got to do to be successful. So I'll balance the question out too. I'll say what was, your, what was you felt like your positives? What was your, your real um, separator to other people that couldn't win on tour? What, what was your positives there in your game? I think I, I, think I had a, a really good uh, imagination out on the golf course I think I was able to improvise very very well and uh, I think I could create a lot of shots out on the golf course uh, I certainly wasn't one-dimensional and I know even when I won in uh, when I won in Valdosta I, I've you know I've got the evidence on tape the amount of draws and cuts and high shots low shots um, I hit a I hit a couple of drives that week drivers off the deck off the tee because I the whole call for a fairway finder and kind of a, a little fade out there. And I knew that I could hit this squeezy low fade off the deck with a driver. And it was a nice little go-to shot to have to keep me in contention. But I think mm-hmm. I was able to, uh, I was able to create shots under pressure, especially when I was able, when I was doing well that I felt very, very comfortable with and I could rely on. Yeah. Cool. So looking back now, what would you say to your 18 year old, you and Porter, what would you say to him? Um, if you were to try and get him to maybe play 20 years? Uh, what, what is going to make golf as fun as, as it is now as an 18-year-old 20 years down the track? And whatever that is, don't stray too far from it. Like I said before, with, um, with how a, a young player becomes good, um, whatever, you, whatever you do to make golf fun, whatever your, um, your lifestyle is, 
maybe as an 18 year old, you have a little bit more fun uh, away from the course than a, a 38 year old. But I think you, you've got to have a, you've got to have a really good golf life balance or work life balance, if you want to call it that. Um, I definitely strayed too far to the work side of it. Uh, got too engrossed in my game and my golf swing and uh, just burnt myself out mentally and wore myself out emotionally. And I, I think that if, you know, when I was 18 and 19, I just, I loved the game of golf and just loved playing the way I did and hitting drivers off pencils and hitting big cuts and draws and mixing it up. And you know, I'd even go and play nine holes with a half set of an afternoon. Everything I did was always just something that was really fun to me. And that fun, uh, really, I, I lost my way when it, when it came to that fun side of it over time. Yeah, keep it fun. That's a, that's good, that's a good advice, mate. Um, to win twice and, and, and to have that success, I think, I think a great player wins, mate. So I think you're a great player. Just because you weren't as consistent as some doesn't mean that you weren't a great player. I wanted to you know, congratulate you on your career for, for what you did. Oh, I appreciate it, Jake. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, I appreciate you having me on and uh, being able to talk about it. And mm. It's nice to... I don't do it too often anymore. I know when I was on tour and uh, it was a pretty selfish lifestyle and we became quite... Most of us do become quite self-indulgent out there. And these days I, I try and be a little bit more unselfish, but... It was, it's nice to reminisce and, and talk about the good times a little bit and uh, appreciate you allowing me to do that. No worries. Yeah, well, we haven't mentioned the three British Opens too, all the Open Championships. So you obviously qualified for them, did you, all three? I did, yeah. It was back when we had the international qualifiers and 2007, 2008, they were at the Lakes Golf Club in Sydney, which I was a member there for seven years. So I certainly had a little bit of um, course knowledge there. And then 2010, I qualified... Uh, down at Kingston Heath in in Melbourne, and they were actually the only three international qualifiers that I played. So I had a, a nice track record when I when I did play those. And mm. the Open Championship, I mean, it's first golf tape I ever watched was the 1990 um, Open Championship at St Andrews. So it was the first. It was my sort of um, induction in, into golf was was seeing the Open Championship and to be a participant in it on three occasions unfortunately i never made the cut uh those three times but um it's not i tell people it's not very often that you go and play golf in terrible weather you play poorly and then you just can't wait to go and do it all again and um, that's exactly what the open championship was for me i played carnoustie royal burkdale and st andrews i probably picked the best three to to qualify for I had a practice round in 07 at Carnoustie with Padre Harrington, who ended up winning that week. So I always tell people that I showed him exactly what not to do. <laughs> but just, um, just I had my best mate caddy for me in 2010 at St. Andrews. And um, then I had the opportunity last year to broadcast at Royal Portrush during the Open. So to play them and then be able to broadcast at the Open Championship, I've been very, very, very lucky. More than, you know, more fortunate than uh, most people. It's certainly, I know, just to attend an Open is a bucket list experience for most. So, again, to, to, to have had those experiences, very, very grateful. Yeah, what a thrill, mate. Especially to play at uh, St Andrews would have been amazing. Um, playing with Harrington, though, on the time he won, he must have been flushing it, was he, in the practice round? He was. It was, it was interesting. He hit every single shot that day with a glove under his left arm. 
And uh, one, one other thing that he did, I've never seen, I know he loves to tinker. One other thing he did, I've never seen anyone else do is he carried his, his normal driver, which was, I think it was a Wilson driver, but it was nine degrees, 45 inches. He carried another driver that was seven and a half degrees and 46 inches. And he said, the reason he did that was this seven and a half degree driver. He said he hit, it was a knuckleball. He said he didn't like the flight on it. It had no spin, but he said, I don't cut this thing or hook this thing. He said it goes straight, but just as a knuckleball. And he said, it's absolutely perfect for Carnoustie. And he went ahead and used it that week and obviously did a pretty good job, uh, except maybe for the 72nd hole of, um, of keeping it in play. And it worked wonders for him. Yeah, he's a fascinating character, isn't he? Uh, he's, he's really fascinating. How, how he can hit some shots with what he does sometimes is fucking worse. I know. He's out there. He, lo- he does love to tinker, but look, that's something that he, yeah. he told me he did that as a kid. So again, he's, mm. he's kept that up his whole career. That's right. Well, I wanted to sort of finish on your um, really cool thing you're doing with Junior Golf in Australia, which is the uh, Junior Six Invitational you've created. Um, please talk about that and the concept and, and, and the format of the tournament. Yeah, so look, I mean, it's been quite a few years now that uh, I've wanted to be able to do something with junior golf and create a tournament, but I wanted to do it right. Uh, I, I didn't want to just hold an 18-hole junior tournament playing for a $50 voucher or attaching my name to it because, A, my name's not big enough, and, B, I, I, I just wanted to do something that, uh, had sustainability and, and, and gave kids opportunity and, and leaves a bit of a legacy, leaves something there that you can, you know, cr- uh, keep building into the future. Then, uh, unfortunately, my, my dad passed away at the end of 2018. And I think that really, well, it did. It really snapped me into gear to be able to um, do something uh, with junior golf in his honour. So, well, sorry to hear I, that, but did, did, was he was he right into junior golf? Was he as through his life? He, well, he, he was he was into he was right into junior golf. It, it was just he he was obviously such a huge supporter of, of of mine, not just through my junior golf career, but every sport that I played um, growing up. And I just I wanted to do something to honor dad, and then I wanted to do something for the kids too. I just wanted to, as I said, let, create these opportunities and pathways that don't otherwise exist. So I was, I was very, very fortunate. None of this would have been able to be possible or have been created without the help of Cronulla Golf Club, uh, which is where I grew up, uh, the PGA of Australia, Golf New South Wales, who I both work for and have a close relationship with, the ALPG Tour. Uh, I, first of all, I approached Cronulla Golf Club to be the host venue for last year and then those other associations that I mentioned they um, came to the party with, with professional exemptions for the players. And look, last year, we had a two-day tournament. It was 36-hole stroke play with a sixes, uh, six-hole match play like the World Super Six tournament that was in Perth. We had that for the top eight players following the stroke play. And in the final, we had both Australian junior champions, Elvis Smiley and High Park for the girls. They both lost, actually, in the in the final and then the boys champion Hayden Hopewell he's gone on to he finished second in the WA Open he was top 10 in the Gippsland Super 6 tour event last year which is one of the exemptions that he got for winning the junior sixes and then he contended in the Australian Open so we had incredible talent uh, and caliber of players on hand 
And then this year, uh, the, what we have done, uh, we've certainly had our challenges. We've had to reschedule uh, a few different times given the pandemic, but we've created a, a national series where it's akin to a race to Dubai or FedEx Cup culminating in um, a national final at Cronulla Golf Club in Sydney. And our first event will be played at Emerald Lakes on the Gold Coast in 18 days, I think it is, on uh, August the 30th. And we've got three qualifying events in Queensland, three in New South Wales. Uh, hopefully by the time the final is played on December 21 and 22, in four months time, that we have the ability to be able to invite maybe a dozen kids from around Australia. So it really is a national competition. Unfortunately for these next couple of months, it's just going to be for New South Wales and Queensland players to be able to accumulate points, uh, just given the various border closures. But like I said, all the exemptions are on offer at the final. We've actually got six tour exemptions now total, which is ab absolutely unheard of. We've got Adidas Golf as title sponsor for the next three years. They're giving away two Adidas Golf scholarships for the points champions at the end. Another cool element to the tournament this year is that we've got uh, boys and girls competing against one another in the sixes section. So the winner could be a boy or a girl. Um, it, will be, it will be scaled tees. So girls will be playing a golf course 86% the length of the men's. That's something that we've figured out from data used from uh, various professional tours around the world. Very cool. Very uh, and cool. then, look, for me, uh, I'm, A, I'm obviously extremely proud of what we've created. I mean, the opportunities and pathways are, I'm going to sound boastful here, but it's just factual. I mean, we're creating something that's not otherwise possible anywhere else in the world. Uh, and then going forward in the future, I want to be able to take this internationally. And I'm very confident that with my connections in Europe and the US, we can, and in Asia as well, that we can create um, some even better opportunities going forward and, uh, and just take the tournament to the next level. And eventually at some point, I would love to have it televised. And um, I think we can really get to that point because we've got some wonderful ambassadors in you know, Victor Hovland and Lucas Herbert, Usman Kawaja, people, Nico Hearn, Todd Woodbridge. I mean, people from um, other sports recognising the opportunities uh, that are on offer. And uh, yeah, look, I'm just, I know my dad's looking down very proudly and I'm just, uh, for everything that I've done and uh, I've achieved, I mean, it pales in comparison to what I'm, what I've been able to do with the support of others, obviously from the various associations and golf genius mm. and, um, and, and the various golf clubs, Cronulla golf club as well. It is a team effort and what we've been able to create uh, is, is something that uh, just makes me smile and very proud. Well, congratulations, mate. Nothing's, nothing's uh, more fulfilling for a human than to help someone else and um, to guide them in life. So um, you're obviously feeling that and creating that. So congratulations on that, mate. Um, I think Thanks. there's a really cool niche that you're entering into because most, most juniors, you know, there's, there's the odd real rare case that just go and do, do really well out of, out of, you know, just finishing high school, but most of them go to college and then use the college system. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a huge gap there. If you don't want to go to college and have to go through that study period where, you know, this sort of thing, if you can create this develop throughout the world would be really substantial for people that want to, go on to professional golf that don't want to do a degree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no question. And uh, I, I'm certainly not going to knock any other pathway. I think what Golf Australia are doing is fantastic. Um, 
and other associations around the world, the English Golf Union, everything that those those associations do are uh, very, very commendable and, and they're great supporters of junior and amateur golf. But um, as far as pathways into professional golf, I mean, to be able to this year play a handful of tournaments, half a dozen tournaments in New South Wales and Queensland, and for a, a boy or a girl to be able to earn their way into three tour events, uh, the girls' ones are co-sanctioned with the European ladies' tour. I mean, just, just from playing at Emerald Lakes or Cronulla or wherever our other tournaments are, they can essentially play their way onto, onto one of those tours. And um, mm. that's, they can bypass all the difficulties that come with when they want to turn professional and what Q school do I go to and how much money have I got to go and play that Q school? And if I don't get through, where am I going to play? They get these invitations into the tournaments. All of those stresses uh, can be alleviated if they go and perform well in those tour events. So like I said, with Hayden last year, he went close to winning on a couple of occasions and like Elvis Smiley, he'll be back this year. I mean, Elvis is certainly more than capable of winning a tour event. He's got a ton of game and there's, quite a few uh, not far behind him. And then Steph Kiriakou, I, I called her win at Bonville in February this year on the Ladies European Tour. I mean, she's only 19 and there's some girls playing our series that have beaten her and are not too far behind her. So um, I'm, ex I'm excited to see where uh, some of the participants in this year's series, where their careers go over the next two or three years. Yeah, look out for Cassie Porter too, your namesake. She uh, had her on I've played with Cassie a couple of times, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah she, uh, um, she's yeah, and just amazing how deep they go under par for their age. <laughs> like, I'm staggered by some of the, the numbers they're putting up. It's just unbelievable. Well, last year at Cronulla, we had 62 participants. Uh, this year, we will have 72. We're going to cap it at 72. But out of the 62 last year, 30 of them are off a plus handicap. Yeah, it, it's completely, like, you're, we're about the same age. It's completely different to when we grew up. Eh? It's just the, the level and consistency of these youngsters that, it's just amazing. So it is. Yep. I'm glad I'm doing what I am now. And yeah, that's those right. <laughs> Too difficult for me. Um, one more question. I'll let you go, mate. Um, what has the game tour golf in the industry taught you about yourself? Uh, it's a good question. Golf is, um, golf is life. Golf is a lifestyle for me. I, I love everything about it. And I think there's, uh, there's a lot of things that you can, you see someone, in golf, the way they react, the way they behave. I think it tells a lot about someone's um, uh, character, one's integrity as well in life. And uh, I was certainly guilty in, in my 20s of being someone who, um, like I've said before, I rode the emotional roller coaster, but someone who lived and died by almost every shot. And that was almost a perfect metaphor for how I treated life in general then. And uh, I think over time, I've, I've learned that you just if you go out there and and, and just accept uh, accept what's given to you the breaks you get roll with the punches that's exactly how life is and uh, I, I absolutely love the game of golf it's given me absolutely everything in my life and uh, you know the people that I've met the places that I've gone the experiences that I've had what I'm doing now the broadcasting the junior series it's all because of golf and I wouldn't I wouldn't change anything for the world. I might do a few things differently again if I was to have a longer playing career. But, um, you know, there was no, for me anyway, there was no guidebook of how I was to uh, dive headfirst into the world of professional golf. And um, I think 
even though I, yes, I was a bit emotional and, and my playing career came to an end earlier than I anticipated or wanted it to, um, I hold my head high that I've been able to uh, remain in a sport that's given me everything and, uh, and, and that I really, really love. Mate, well, you've given back uh, tenfold um, what you're doing with the Sixers and uh, your broadcasting. The industry's a far greater place with you in it, mate. So I want to appreciate uh, you reflecting on your career with me today and your time. I really appreciate it and I really enjoyed digging into your brain uh, and, and what you've done in the golf industry. Appreciate it, Jake. Thanks very much for having me on and uh, any time. No, no, I appreciate it. All right. Well, uh, all the best in lockdown. I hope you get out there soon and uh, I'd like to hear you back on the airwaves. Yep. All the best, mate. Thank you. Take care of yourself down there. Thanks, Sion. Cheers, mate. <laughs>